Chapter Six of the Story of Electricity. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Story of Electricity by John Munro. Chapter Six: The Telegraph and Telephone. Like the philosopher's stone, the elixir of youth, and perpetual motion, the telegraph was long a dream of the imagination. In the sixteenth century, if not before, it was believed that two magnetic needles could be made sympathetic, so that when one was moved, the other would likewise move, however far apart they were, and thus enable two distant friends to communicate their minds to one another. The idea was prophetic, although the means of giving effect to it were mistaken. It became practicable, however, when Ersted discovered that a magnetic needle could be swung to one side or the other by an electric current passing near it. The illustrious Laplace was the first to suggest a telegraph on this principle. A wire connecting the two poles of a battery is traversed, as we know, by an electric current, which makes the round of the circuit, and only flows when that circuit is complete. However long the wire may be, however far it may run between the poles, the current will follow all its windings, and finish its course from pole to pole of the battery. You may lead the wire across the ocean and back, or round the world if you will, and the current will travel through it. The moment you break the wire or circuit, however, the current will stop. By its electromotive force it can overcome the resistance of the many miles of conductor, but unless it be unusually strong, it cannot leap across even a minute gap of air, which is one of the best insulators. If, then, we have a simple device, easily manipulated, by which we can interrupt the circuit of the battery, in accordance with a given code, we shall be able to send a series of currents through the wire and make sensible signals wherever we choose. These signs can be produced by the deviation of a magnetic needle, as Laplace pointed out, or by causing an electromagnet to attract soft iron, or by chemical decomposition, or any other sensible effect of the current. Ampere developed the idea of Laplace into a definite plan, and in 1830 or thereabout, Ritchie in London and Baron Schilling in St. Petersburg exhibited experimental models. In 1833 and afterwards, Professors Gauss and Weber installed a private telegraph between the observatory and the physical cabinet of the University of Göttingen. Moreover, in 1836, William Fothergill Cook, a retired surgeon of the Madras Army, attending lectures on anatomy at the University of Heidelberg, saw an experimental telegraph of Professor Monke, which turned all his thoughts to the subject. On returning to London, he made the acquaintance of Professor Wheatstone of King's College, who was also experimenting in this direction and in 1836 they took out a patent for a needle telegraph. It was tried successfully between the Euston Terminus and the Camden Town Station of the London and North Western Railway on the evening of July the 25th, 1837, in presence of Mr. Robert Stevenson and other eminent engineers. Wheatstone, sitting in a small room near the booking office at Euston, sent the first message to Cook at Camden Town, who at once replied. Never, said Wheatstone, did I feel such a tumultuous sensation before, as when, all alone in the still room, I heard the needles click, and as I spelled the words, I felt all the magnitude of the invention pronounced to be practicable, without cavil or dispute. The importance of the telegraph in working railways was manifest, and yet the directors of the company were so purblind as to order the removal of the apparatus, and it was not until two years later that the Great Western Railway Company adopted it on their line, from Paddington to West Drayton, 
and subsequently to Slough. This was the first telegraph for public use, not merely in England, but the world. The charge for a message was only a shilling, nevertheless few persons availed themselves of the new invention, and it was not until its fame was spread abroad by the clever capture of a murderer named Tawell that it began to prosper. Tawell had killed a woman at Slough, and on leaving his victim took the train for Paddington. The police, apprised of the murder, telegraphed a description of him to London. The original five-needle instrument, now in the museum of the post office, had a dial in the shape of a diamond, on which were marked the letters of the alphabet, and each letter of a word was pointed out by the movements of a pair of needles. The dial had no letter Q, and as the man was described as a Quaker, the word was sent K-W-A-K-E-R. When the train arrived at Paddington, he was shadowed by detectives, and to his utter astonishment was quietly arrested in a tavern near Cannon Street. In Cook and Wheatstone's early telegraph, the wire travelled the whole round of the circuit, but it was soon found that a return wire in the circuit was unnecessary, since the earth itself could take the place of it. One wire from the sending station to the receiving station was sufficient, provided the apparatus at each end were properly connected to the ground. This use of the earth not only saved the expense of a return wire, but diminished the resistance of the circuit, because the earth offered practically no resistance. Figure 45 is a diagram of the connections in a simple telegraph circuit. At each of the stations there is a battery, B, B1, an interrupter or sending key, K, K1, to make and break the continuity of the circuit, a receiving instrument, R, R1, to indicate the signal currents by their sensible effects, and connections with ground or earth plates, E, E1, to engage the earth as a return wire. These are usually copper plates buried in the moist subsoil or the water pipes of a city. The line wire is commonly of iron supported on poles, but insulated from them by earthenware cups or insulators. At the station on the left, the key is in the act of sending a message, and at the post on the right, it is conformably in the position for receiving the message. The key is so constructed that when it is at rest, it puts the line in connection with the earth through the receiving instrument and the earth plate. The key K consists essentially of a spring lever with two platinum contacts, so placed that when the lever is pressed down by the hand of the telegraphist, it breaks contact with the receiver R and puts the line wire L in connection with the earth E through the battery B, as shown on the left. A current then flows into the line and traverses the receiver R1 at the distant station, returning or seeming to return to the sending battery by way of the earth plate E1 on the right and the intermediate ground. The duration of the current is at the will of the operator who works the sending key, and it is plain that signals can be made by currents of various lengths. In the Morse code of signals, which is now universal, only two lengths of current are employed, namely a short momentary pulse, produced by instant contact of the key, and a jet given by a contact about three times longer. These two signals are called dot and dash, and the code is merely a suitable combination of them to signify the several letters of the alphabet. Thus E, the commonest letter in English, is telegraphed by a single dot, and the letter T by a single dash, while the letter A is indicated by a dot followed after a brief interval or space by a dash. Obviously, if two kinds of current are used, that is to say, if the poles of the battery are reversed by the sending key 
and the direction of the current is consequently reversed in the circuit, there is no need to alter the length of the signal currents, because a momentary current sent in one direction will stand for a dot, and in the other direction for a dash. As a matter of fact, the code is used in both ways, according to the nature of the line and receiving instrument. On submarine cables, and with needle and mirror instruments, the signals are made by reversing currents of equal duration, but on landlines worked by Morse instruments and sounders, they are produced by short and long currents. The Morse code is also used in the army for signalling by waving flags or flashing lights, and may also be serviceable in private life. Telegraph clerks have been known to speak with each other in company by winking the right and left eye, or tapping their teaspoon on a cup and saucer. Any two distinct signs, however made, can be employed as a telegraph by means of the Morse code, which runs as shown in figure 46. Reader's note, the Morse code for some letters and numbers appears to be incomplete in this transcription and also differs from other editions of the same book. End of reader's note. A dot dash B dash dot 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 C dot 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 D dash dot dot E dot F dot dash dot G dash dash dot H dot space dot dot I dot dot J dash dot dash dot K dash dot dash L dash dash M dash space dash N dash dot O dot space dot Q dot dot dash dot R dot space dot dot S dot 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 T dash U dot dot dash V dot 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 dash W dot dash X dot dash dot dot Y dot dot space dot dot Z dot 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 space dot and dot space dot dot period dot dot dash dash dot dot comma dot dash dot dash one dot dash dash dot two dot dot dash dot dot three dot 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 dash dot four dot 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 dash five dash 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 six dot 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 seven dash dash dot dot eight dash dot dot space dot dot nine dash dot dot dash zero dash 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 the international morse code used elsewhere is the same as the above with the following exceptions c dash dot dash dot f dot space dash dot j dot dash 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 l dot dash dot dot o dash 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 P dot dash dash dot Q dash dash dot dash R dot dash dot X dash dot dot dash Y dash dot dash dash Z dash dash dot dot The receiving instruments R R one may consist of a magnetic needle pivoted on its centre and surrounded by a coil of wire, through which the current passes and deflects the needle to one side or the other, according to the direction in which it flows. Such was the pioneer instrument of Cook and Wheatstone, which is still employed in England in a simplified form as the single and double needle instrument on some of the local lines and in railway telegraphs. The signals are made by sending momentary currents in opposite directions by a double current key, which, unlike the key K in figure 45, 
reverses the poles of the battery in putting the line to one or the other, and thus making the dot signal with the positive and the dash signal with the negative pole. It follows that if the dot is indicated by a throw of the needle to the right side, a dash will be given by a throw to the left. Most of the telegraph instruments for landlines are based on the principle of the electromagnet. We have already seen, page 59, how Ampere found that a spiral of wire with a current flowing in it behaved like a magnet and was able to suck a piece of soft iron into it. If the iron is allowed to remain there as a core, the combination of coil and core becomes an electromagnet. That is to say, a magnet which is only a magnet so long as the current passes. Figure 47 represents a simple horseshoe electromagnet as invented by Sturgeon. A U-shaped core of soft iron is wound with insulated wire W and when a current is sent through the wire, the core is found to become magnetic with a north pole in one end and a south pole in the other. These poles are therefore able to attract a separate piece of soft iron or armature, A. When the current is stopped, however, the core ceases to be a magnet and the armature drops away. In practice, the electromagnet usually takes the form shown in figure 48, where the poles are two bobbins or solenoids of wire, B, and A is the armature. Such an electromagnet is a more powerful device than a swinging needle, and better able to actuate a mechanism. It became the foundation of the recording instrument of Samuel Morse, the father of the telegraph in America. The Morse, or rather Morse and Veil instrument, actually marks the signals in dots and dashes on a ribbon of moving paper. Figure 49 represents the Morse instrument, in which an electromagnet M attracts an iron armature A when a current passes through its bobbins, and by means of a lever L connected with the armature, raises the edge of a small disc out of an ink pot I against the surface of a travelling slip of paper, P, and marks a dot or dash upon it as the case may be. The rest of the apparatus consists of details and accessories for its action and adjustment, together with the sending key, K, which is used in asking for repetitions of the words, if necessary. A permanent record of the message is, of course, convenient. Nevertheless, the operators prefer to read the signals by the ear rather than the eye, and, to the annoyance of Morse, would listen to the click of the marking disc rather than decipher the marks on the paper. Consequently, Alfred Vale, the collaborator of Morse, who really invented the Morse code, produced a modification of the recording instrument working solely for the ear. The sounder, as it is called, has largely driven the printer from the field. This neat little instrument is shown in figure 50, where M is the electromagnet and A is the armature which chatters up and down between two metal stops, as the current is made and broken by the sending key, and the operator listening to the sounds interprets the message letter by letter and word by word. The motion of the armature in both of these instruments takes a sensible time, but Alexander Bain of Thurso, by trade a watchmaker and by nature a genius, invented a chemical telegraph which was capable of a prodigious activity. The instrument of Bain resembled the Morse in marking the signals on a tape of moving paper, but this was done by electrolysis or electrochemical decomposition. The paper was soaked in a solution of iodide of potassium in starch and water, and the signal currents were passed through it by a marking stylus or pencil of iron. The electricity decomposed the solution in its passage, and left a blue stain on the paper which corresponded to the dot and dash of the Morse apparatus. The Bain telegraph can record over a thousand words a minute, 
as against forty to fifty by the morse or sounder. Nevertheless, it has fallen into disuse, perhaps because the solution was troublesome. It is stated that a certain blind operator could read the signals by the smell of the chemical action, and we can well believe it. In fact, the telegraph appeals to every sense, for a deaf clerk can feel the movements of a sounder, and the signals of the current can be told without any instrument by the mere taste of the wires inserted in the mouth. A skilful telegraphist can transmit twenty-five words a minute with the single current key, and nearly twice as many by the double current key, and if we remember that an average English word requires fifteen separate signals, the number will seem remarkable, but by means of Wheatstone's automatic sender, a hundred and fifty words or more can be sent in a minute. Among telegraphs designed to print the message in Roman type, that of Professor David Edward Hughes is doubtless the fittest, since it is now in general use on the continent, and conveys our continental news. In this apparatus, the electromagnet, on attracting its armature, presses the paper against a revolving type wheel, and receives the print of a type, so that the message can be read by a novice. To this effect, the type wheel at the receiving station has to keep in perfect time as it revolves, so that the right letter shall be above the paper when the current passes. Small varieties of the type printer are employed for the distribution of news and prices in most of the large towns, being located in hotels, restaurants, saloons, and other public places, and reporting prices of stocks and bonds, horse-races, and sporting and general news. The duplex system, whereby two messages, one in either direction, can be sent over one wire simultaneously without interfering, and the quadruplex system, whereby four messages, two in either direction, are also sent at once, have come into use where the traffic over the lines is very great. Both of these systems and their modifications depend on an ingenious arrangement of the apparatus at each end of the line, by which the signal currents sent out from one station do not influence the receivers there, but leave them free to indicate the currents from the distant station. When the Wheatstone automatic sender is employed with these systems, about five hundred words per minute can be sent through the line. Press news is generally sent by night, and it is on record that during a great debate in Parliament, as many as half a million words poured out of the central telegraph station at St. Martin's Le Grand in a single night to all parts of the country. Errors occur now and then through bad penmanship or the similarity of certain signals, and amusing telegrams have been sent out as when the nomination of Mr. Brand for the Speakership of the Commons took the form of Proposed to Brand Speaker, and an excursion party assured their friends at home of their security by the message, Arrived all tight. Telegraphs, in the literal sense of the word, which actually write the message as with a pen, and make a copy or facsimile of the original, have been invented from time to time. Such are the telegraphic pen of Mr. E. A. Cooper, and the telautographs of Mr. J. H. Robertson and Mr. Elisha Gray. The first two are based on a method of varying the strength of the current in accordance with the curves of the handwriting, and making the varied current actuate, by means of magnetism, a writing pen or stylus at the distant station. The instrument of Gray which is the most successful, works by intermittent currents or electrical impulses that excite electromagnets and move the stylus at the far end of the line. They are too complicated for description here, and are not of much practical importance. Telegraphs for transmitting sketches and drawings have also been devised by Dablancourt and others, but they have not come into general use. Of late, another step forward has been taken by Mr. Amstutz, who in 
who has invented an apparatus for transmitting photographic pictures to a distance by means of electricity. The system may be described as a combination of the photograph and telegraph. An ordinary negative picture is taken and then impressed on a gelatin plate sensitized with bichromate of potash. The parts of the gelatin in light become insoluble, while the parts in shade can be washed away by water. In this way, a relief or engraving of the picture is obtained on the gelatin, and a cross-section through the plate would, if looked at edgeways, appear serrated or up and down, like a section of country or the trace of the stylus in the record of a phonograph. The gelatin plate, thus carved by the action of light and water, is wrapped round a revolving drum or barrel, and a spring stylus or point is caused to pass over it as the barrel revolves, after the manner of a phonographic cylinder. In doing so, the stylus rises and falls over the projections in the plate, and works a lever against a set of telegraph keys, which open electric contacts and break the connections of an electric battery, which is joined between the keys and the earth. There are four keys, and when they are untouched, the current splits up through four bypaths or bobbins of wire, before it enters the line wire and passes to the distant station. When any of the keys are touched, however, the corresponding bypath or bobbin is cut out of circuit. The suppression of a bypath or channel for the current has the effect of adding to the resistance of the line, and therefore of diminishing the strength of the current. When all the keys are untouched, the resistance is least, and the current strongest. On the other hand, when all the keys but the last are touched, the resistance is greatest, and the current weakest. By this device it is easy to see that as the stylus or tracer sinks into a hollow of the gelatin, or rises over a height, the current in the line becomes stronger or weaker. At the distant station the current passes through a solenoid or hollow coil of wire connected to the earth and magnetizes it, so as to pull the soft iron plug or core with greater or less force into its hollow interior. The up and down movement of the plug actuates a graving stylus or point through a lever, and engraves a copy of the original gelatin trace on the surface of a wax or gelatin plate overlying another barrel or drum, which revolves at a rate corresponding to that of the barrel at the transmitting station. In this way, a facsimile of the gelatin picture is produced at the distant station, and an electrotype or cliché of it can be made for printing purposes. The method is, in fact, a species of electric line graving, and Mr. Amstutz hopes to apply it to engraving on gold, silver, or any soft metal, not necessarily at a distance. We know that an electric current in one wire can induce a transient current in a neighboring wire, and the fact has been utilized in the United States by Phelps and others to send messages from moving trains. The signal currents are intermittent, and when they are passed through a conductor on the train, they excite corresponding currents in a wire run along the track, which can be interpreted by the hum they make in a telephone. Experiments recently made by Mr. W. H. Priest for the post office show that with currents of sufficient strength and proper apparatus, messages can be sent through the air for five miles or more by this method of induction. We come now to the submarine telegraph, which differs in many respects from the overland telegraph. Obviously, since water and moist earth is a conductor, a wire to convey an electric current must be insulated if it is intended to lie at the bottom of the sea or buried underground. The best materials for the purpose yet discovered are gutta-percha and india-rubber, which are both flexible and very good insulators. The first submarine cable was laid across the channel from Dover to Calais 
in 1851, and consisted of a copper strand coated with gutta-percha and protected from injury by an outer sheath of hemp and iron wire. It is the general type of all the submarine cables which have been deposited since then in every part of the world. As a rule, the armour or sheathing is made heavier for shore water than it is for the deep sea, but the electrical portion or core, that is to say the insulated conductor, is the same throughout. The first Atlantic cable was laid in 1858 by Cyrus W. Field and a company of British capitalists, but it broke down, and it was not until 1866 that a new and successful cable was laid to replace it. Figure 51 represents various cross-sections of an Atlantic cable deposited in 1894. The inner star of twelve copper wires is the conductor, and the black circle round it is the gutta-percha or insulator which keeps the electricity from escaping into the water. The core in shallow water is protected from the bites of teredos by a brass tape, and the envelope or armour consists of hemp and iron wire preserved from corrosion by a covering of tape and a compound of mineral pitch and sand. The circuit of a submarine line is essentially the same as that of a land line, except that the earth connection is usually the iron sheathing of the cable in lieu of an earth plate. On a cable, however, at least a long cable, the instruments for sending and receiving the messages are different from those employed on a landline. A cable is virtually a Leyden jar or condenser, and the signal currents in the wire induce opposite currents in the water or earth. As these charges hold each other, the signals are retarded in their progress, and altered from sharp, sudden jets to lagging undulations or waves, which tend to run together or coalesce. The result is that the separate signal currents which enter a long cable issue from it at the other end in one continuous current, with pulsations at every signal that is to say, in a lapsing stream, like a jet of water flowing from a constricted spout. The receiving instrument must be sufficiently delicate to manifest every pulsation of the current. Its indicator, in fact, must respond to every rise and fall of the current as a float rides on the ripples of a stream. Such an instrument is the beautiful mirror galvanometer of Lord Kelvin, ex-president of the Royal Society, which we illustrate in figure 52, where C is a coil of wire with a small magnetic needle suspended in its heart, and D is a steel magnet supported over it. The needle, M, figure 53, is made of watch springs cemented to the back of a tiny mirror, the size of a half-dime, which is hung by a single fibre of floss silk inside an air cell or chamber with a glass lens G in front, and the coil C surrounds it. A ray of light from a lamp L, figure 52, falls on the mirror and is reflected back to a scale S, on which it makes a bright spot. Now, when the coil C is connected between the end of the cable and the earth, the signal current passing through it causes the tiny magnet to swing from side to side, and the mirror moving with it throws the beam up and down the scale. The operator sitting by watches the spot of light as it flits and flickers like a firefly in the darkness, and spells out the mysterious message. A condenser joined in the circuit between the cable and the receiver, or between the receiver and the earth, has the effect of sharpening the waves of the current, and consequently of the signals. The double current key, which reverses the poles of the battery and allows the signal currents to be of one length, that is to say all dots, is employed to send the message. 
Another receiving instrument employed on most of the longer cables is the siphon recorder of Lord Kelvin, shown in figure 54, which marks or writes the message on a slip of travelling paper. Essentially, it is the inverse of the mirror instrument, and consists of a light coil of wire, S, suspended in the field between the poles of a strong magnet, M. The coil is attached to a fine siphon, P, filled with ink, and sometimes kept in vibration by an induction coil, so as to shake the ink in fine drops upon a slip of moving paper. The coil is connected between the cable and the earth, and as the signal current passes through, it swings to one side or the other, pulling the siphon with it. The ink, therefore, marks a wavy line on the paper, which is, in fact, a delineation of the rise and fall of the signal current, and a record of the message. The dots, in this case, are represented by the waves above, and the dashes by the waves below the middle line, as may be seen in the following alphabet, which is a copy of one actually written by the recorder on a long submarine cable. Owing to induction, the speed of signalling on long cables is much slower than on landlines of the same length, and only reaches from 25 to 45 words a minute on the Atlantic cables, or 30 to 50 words with an automatic sending key. But this rate is practically doubled by employing the Muirhead duplex system of sending two messages, one from each end, at the same time. The relation of the telegraph to the telephone is analogous to that of the lower animals and man. In a telegraph circuit, with its clicking key at one end and its chattering sounder at the other, we have, in fact, an apish forerunner of the exquisite telephone, with its mysterious microphone and oracular plate. Nevertheless, the telephone descended from the telegraph in a very indirect manner, if at all, and certainly not through the sounder. The first practical suggestion of an electric telephone was made by Monsieur Charles Bourseul, a French telegraphist, in 1854, but to all appearance nothing came of it. In 1860, however, Philippe Reis, a German schoolmaster, constructed a rudimentary telephone by which music and a few spoken words were sent. Finally, in 1876, Mr. Alexander Graham Bell, a Scotchman residing in Canada, and subsequently in the United States, exhibited a capable speaking telephone of his invention at the Centennial Exhibition, Philadelphia. Figure 56 represents an outside view and section of the Bell telephone as it is now made, where M is a bar magnet having a small bobbin or coil of fine insulated wire, C, girdling one pole. In front of this coil there is a circular plate of soft iron, capable of vibrating like a diaphragm or the drum of the ear. A cover shaped like a mouthpiece, O, fixes the diaphragm all round, and the wires, WW, serve to connect the coil in the circuit. The soft iron diaphragm is, of course, magnetised by the induction of the pole, and would be attracted bodily to the pole were it not fixed by the rim, so that only its middle is free to move. Now, when a person speaks into the mouthpiece, the sonorous waves impinge on the diaphragm, and make it vibrate in sympathy with them. Being magnetic, the movement of the diaphragm to and from the bobbin excites corresponding waves of electricity in the coil, after the famous experiment of Faraday, page 64. If this undulatory current is passed through the coil of a similar telephone at the far end of the line, it will, by a reverse action, set the diaphragm in vibration, and reproduce the original sonorous waves. The result is that when another person listens at the mouthpiece of the receiving telephone, he will hear a faithful imitation of the original speech.
the Bell telephone is virtually a small magnetoelectric generator of electricity, and when two are joined in circuit, we have a system for the transmission of energy. As the voice is the motive power, its talk, though distinct, is comparatively feeble, and further improvements were made before the telephone became as serviceable as it is now. Edison, in 1877, was the first to invent a working telephone, which, instead of generating the current, merely controlled the strength of it, as the sluice of a mill-dam regulates the flow of water in the lead. Dumoncel had observed that powder of carbon altered in electrical resistance under pressure, and Edison found that lamp-black was so sensitive as to change in resistance under the impact of the sonorous waves. His transmitter consisted of a button or wafer of lamp-black behind a diaphragm, and connected in the circuit. On speaking to the diaphragm, the sonorous waves pressed it against the button, and so varied the strength of the current in a sympathetic manner. The receiver of Edison was equally ingenious, and consisted of a cylinder of prepared chalk kept in rotation, and a brass stylus rubbing on it. When the undulatory current passed from the stylus to the chalk, the stylus slipped on the surface, and being connected to a diaphragm, made it vibrate and repeat the original sounds. This electromotograph receiver was, however, given up, and a combination of the Edison transmitter and the Bell receiver came into use. At the end of 1877, Professor D. E. Hughes, a distinguished Welshman, inventor of the printing telegraph, discovered that any loose contact between two conductors had the property of transmitting sounds by varying the strength of an electric current passing through it. Two pieces of metal, for instance two nails or ends of wire, when brought into a loose or crazy contact under a slight pressure and traversed by a current, will transmit speech. Two pieces of hard carbon are still better than metals, and if properly adjusted, will make the tread of a fly quite audible in a telephone connected with them. Such is the famous microphone, by which a faint sound can be magnified to the ear. Figure 57 represents what is known as the pencil microphone, in which M is a pointed rod of hard carbon, delicately poised between two brackets of carbon, which are connected in circuit with a battery, B, and a bell telephone, T. The joints of rod and bracket are so sensitive that the current flowing across them is affected in strength by the slightest vibration, even the walking of an insect. If, therefore, we speak near this microphone, the sonorous waves, causing the pencil to vibrate, will so vary the current in accordance with them as to reproduce the sounds of the voice in the telephone. The true nature of the microphone is not yet known, but it is evident that the air or ether between the surfaces in contact plays an important part in varying the resistance and therefore the current. In fact, a small voltaic arc, not luminous but dark, seems to be formed between the points, and the vibrations probably alter its length and, consequently, its resistance. The fact that a microphone is reversible and can act as a receiver, though a poor one, tends to confirm this theory. Moreover, it is not unlikely that the slipping of the stylus in the electromotograph is due to a similar cause. Be this as it may, there can be no doubt that carbon powder and the lamp black of the Edison button are essentially a cluster of microphones. Many varieties of the Hughes microphone under different names are now employed as transmitters in connection with the Bell telephone. Figure 58 represents a simple micro-telephone circuit, where M is the Hughes microphone transmitter, T the Bell telephone receiver, B the battery, and E E the earth plates.
but sometimes the return wire is used in place of the earth. The line wire is usually of copper and its alloys, which are more suitable than iron, especially for long distances. Just as the signal currents in a submarine cable induce corresponding currents in the sea water, which retard them, so the currents in a land wire induce corresponding currents in the earth. But in aerial lines, the earth is generally so far away that the consequent retardation is negligible, except in fast working on long lines. The bell telephone, however, is extremely sensitive, and this induction affects it so much that a conversation through one wire can be overheard on a neighbouring wire. Moreover, there is such a thing as self-induction in a wire. That is to say, a current in a wire tends to induce an opposite current in the same wire, which is practically equivalent to an increase of resistance in the wire. It is particularly observed at the starting and stopping of a current, and gives rise to what is called the extra spark, seen in breaking the circuit of an induction coil. It is also active in the vibratory currents of the telephone, and, like ordinary induction, tends to retard their passage. Copper, being less susceptible of self-induction than iron, is preferred for trunk lines. The disturbing effect of ordinary induction is avoided by using a return wire or loop circuit, and crossing the going and coming wires so as to make them exchange places at intervals. Moreover, it is found that an induction coil in the telephone circuit, like a condenser in the cable circuit, improves the working, and hence it is usual to join the battery and transmitter with the primary wire, and the secondary wire with the line and the receiver. The longest telephone line as yet made is that from New York to Chicago a distance of 950 miles. It is made of thick copper wire erected on cedar poles 35 feet above the ground. Induction is so strong on submarine cables of 50 or 100 miles in length that the delicate waves of the telephone current are smoothed away and the speech is either muffled or entirely stifled. Nevertheless, a telephone cable twenty miles long was laid between Dover and Calais in 1891, and another between Stranra and Donagadee more recently, thus placing Great Britain on speaking terms with France and other parts of the continent. Figure 59 shows a form of telephone apparatus employed in the United Kingdom. In it, the transmitter and receiver together with a call-bell, which are required at each end of the line, are neatly combined. The transmitter is a Blake microphone, in which the loose joint is a contact of platinum on hard carbon. It is fitted up inside the box, together with an induction coil, and M is the mouthpiece for speaking to it. The receiver is a pair of bell telephones, TT which are detached from their hooks and held to the ear. A call-bell, B, serves to ring up the correspondent at the other end of the line. Excepting private lines, the telephone is worked on the exchange system. That is to say, the wires running to different persons converge in a central exchange, where, by means of an apparatus called a switchboard, they are connected together for the purpose of conversation. A telephone exchange would make an excellent subject for the artist. He delights to paint us a row of Venetian bead-stringers, or a band of civilian cigarette-makers, but why does he shirk a bevy of industrious girls working a telephone exchange? Let us peep into one of these retired haunts where the modern fates are cutting and joining the lines of electric speech between man and man in a great city. The scene is a long, handsome room or gallery, with a singular piece of furniture in the shape of an L occupying the middle. 
This is the switchboard, in which the wires from the offices and homes of the subscribers are concentrated like the nerves in a ganglion. It is known as the multiple switchboard, an American invention, and is divided into sections over which the operators preside. The lines of all the subscribers are brought to each section, so that the operator can cross-connect any two lines in the whole system without leaving her chair. Each section of the board is, in fact, an epitome of the whole, but it is physically impossible for a single operator to make all the connections of a large exchange, and the work is distributed amongst them. A multiplicity of wires is therefore needed to connect, say, 2,000 subscribers. These are all concealed, however, at the back of the board, and in charge of the electricians. The young lady operators have nothing to do with these, and so much the better for them, as it would puzzle their minds a good deal worse than a ravelled skein of thread. Their duty is to sit in front of the board in comfortable seats at a long table, and make the needful connections. The call signal of a subscriber is given by the drop of a disc bearing his number. The operator then asks the subscriber by telephone what he wants, and on hearing the number of the other subscriber he wishes to speak with, she takes up a pair of brass plugs coupled by a flexible conductor, and joins the lines of the subscribers on the switchboard by simply thrusting the plugs into holes corresponding to the wires. The subscribers are then free to talk with each other undisturbed, and the end of the conversation is signalled to the operator. Every instant the call discs are dropping, the connecting plugs are thrust into the holes, and the girls are asking, Hello? Hello? Are you there? Who are you? Have you finished? Yet all this constant activity goes on quietly, deftly, we might say elegantly, and in comparative silence, for the low tones of the girlish voices are soft and pleasing, and the harsher sounds of the subscriber are unheard in the room by all save the operator who attends to him. End of chapter 6